This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Draft Lab knows that quality and consistency are your brewery's top priorities. DraftLab provides easy-to-use sensory analysis tools designed to bring your tasting data into action. To start your free two-week trial today, visit DraftLab.com. That's D-R-A-U-G-H-T Lab.com. If you're reclaiming that yeast, or you want your profile to be the same this week as it is next week, you have to be very sensitive to the fact that you're dealing with something that's alive. And if you don't treat it right, it's not going to behave correctly. This week on the show, one of the smartest brewmasters I know talks about keeping yeast happy. This episode originally aired in April of 2017. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode you won't want to miss. There's a whole bunch of stuff the two of us could talk about today, uh, but I'd like to focus on an article that you wrote for the last Technical Quarterly of 2016. It's called Maintaining Good Yeast Health, a Reflection from Practice. This is a very good article, and you know me well enough to know that I'd tell you if I thought otherwise, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I like about this article. For, for starters, it's got, a, it's got a decent dose of uh, practical advice based on extensive experience regarding yeast storage times, pitch rates, water chemistry, and, and other stuff. And then you also cite, I think, about 10 great references that readers can leverage to go learn more about specific topics. And then the third thing is that it embodies a discussion you and I have had several times about education, the need of today, needs of today's craft brewers, and shortcuts versus real understanding. We can talk more about that later if you'd like. But I actually uh, sent this article to someone just earlier today who wrote to me asking why their fermentations uh, are now finishing higher than what was, was previously normal to them. And I especially wanted them to see your advice, which I'd also given previously, about knowing ferment, uh, fermentability up to, uh, you know, in advance, up front. So right. why don't you start off by telling listeners just how important and easy that is to do? Well, it actually isn't an easy process to do. It's, it's, a, it's a forced fermentation, um, actually. Uh, in order to generate the value that you need, so you'd act back calculate it from that, that process. So you, you need an exacting um, process, and the SBC has that identified. It's on shaker tables, et cetera. Once you have the equipment and 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 that that 
ability set up, it becomes something that you learn to live with. And and you look for those values ahead of time so that you can actually see if your browse is performing properly. And, and from that, you can also go back to whether or not you've got the right um, material coming in from your suppliers, if the suppliers actually have made some shortcuts, et cetera. So to me, having an RDF or fermentability level is 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 premiumly important um, to just about anything that you're going to do as far as uh, creating a, a beer and a beer style without having that i think you're kind of lost in many respects yeah i think i think you're totally flying blind if you have no if you can't anticipate where a beer is going to finish in in some regard let's talk about you you write about fan and, and we often hear generalizations about fan for example you hear things like all malt brewers always have enough fan and and never have to worry about it. Your article basically says, hold the phone. It's not quite that simple. Fans should be tied directly to the amount of yeast that you're trying to grow. And there's you, you also talk about the different categories of fan that produce different results. Um, why don't we talk about those concepts a little bit? Sure. It's, it's, it can be a complex concept or you can completely ignore it. It all depends upon what kind of a brewery you want to be. Um, and, but if you look at premium or nitrogen and you look at yeast growth in general, you're looking at somewhere around a need for about 100, 120 to 140 parts per million of premium or nitrogen to grow a reasonable amount of yeast in, in your process. Now, if you look at what most craft brewers are doing uh, today with an all malt process, um, you could end up with premium or nitrogen content as high as 400 ppm. Now, if you're only using 120 of that, that's a lot left over in your process, a lot for turbidity, a lot for trube, um, et cetera. There's a lot of opportunities with that from mouthfeel and bacterial contamination. I can, I, we can go on for a while, but let's push all that to side. If you're trying to, trying to influence the flavor profile that you're creating with the beer, you have to be very aware of the free amino nitrogen content. Um, because the yeast uptake the free amino nitrogen in categories, and, and it's four basic categories, where you look at category one are uh, amino acids that are, are primarily non-flavor generating when you look at how they make the transition in the process to uh, higher alcohols, aldehydes, and esters. Um, category two uh, amino acids tend to have the rose, the floral, the fruity, the banana um, flavor notes that, that are associated with those amino acids. Category three, you get into other uh, com other flavor notes, sulfury, you, and you can get into some um, um, fusels and, and, and solventy kind of notes. And then category four is just proline. So you kind of forget about category four, four for that matter. But if you have significant levels of free amino nitrogen the yeast will uptake category one primarily right from the start and will consume primarily category one free or amino acids and then the flavor notes that are generated from that only come from those amino acids and, and with that you don't get a lot of fruitiness you don't get any lot of depth in the in the um, solventy aldehyde um, or other flavor notes that you might be looking for in your beer by dropping the free amino nitrogen content, and you do that by dilution, uh, you either using crystal malts or other malts that have completely glassified or eliminated the protein content, um, or by using uh, adjuncts. Ooh, I said the adjunct word. That's a nasty word, apparently, in, <laughs> in circles. But by, by diluting the protein content, um, you can actually boost 
beautiful ester profiles um, by, by influencing the, the category two amino acids to pop out. And you can even take it as further and, and really reduce your free amino nitrogen content and start focusing on category three amino acids and look for sulfur notes and, and, and solventy notes. And even the rose um, uh, phenylethyl acetate uh, tends to pop out in, in category three. So there is a lot of complexity when you look at free amino nitrogen and, and, and the actual outcome of the flavor that you're looking for. If 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 you're in the high end, in the 300, 400 range, all you're really going to get are the flavor notes that you add, the hop profile and the grainy notes associated with it. So it's, it's a matter of how much complexity you want to add to your beer flavor. Very good. You briefly mentioned zinc additions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal observations with zinc? Zinc is a is an interesting, it's a dynamic tool. Um, some folks just accept the amount of zinc, and you do have significant amounts of zinc in your uh, grain but if you're looking to influence uh, settling of the yeast the timing of settling of the yeast the overall health of the yeast there's a balance required for calcium and zinc levels um, and it's highly yeast dependent it'll also be tied directly to your water chemistry so it's one of those things that you have to play with but uh, in my past life, we would actually make tiny adjustments to, to the zinc additions to actually force the yeast to, to actually fall out of suspension at exactly the right time. So you'd end up with a, an attenuation that fit exactly where you wanted it to be, which may be, you know, several points above your free, your, your uh, endpoint that you're looking for so that you can carry over to a secondary uh, fermentation if you're looking for that process, uh, a small amount of sugar. But if you don't have the right mineral balance, you're not going to get the yeast to perform properly. At the same time, without having the right mineral balance, yeast is not healthy. Um, it, you can have too much zinc or you, you may not have enough. And getting robust and continuous um, uh, performing yeast, it's very important to have uh, a good balance. And one of the easiest markers to work with is zinc. By the way, I, I went up to the uh, District Western New York meeting in Utica in February. And Joe uh, Kenny, who works there at FX Matt, gave a great presentation on the importance of zinc and how um, they've been able to manipulate flocculation, just as you were talking about with, with zinc additions to better control their process. And he talked a lot about some of the trial and error that, you know, swings from, you know, complete peanut butter to very powdery and everything in, in the middle. And um, so it was really interesting to, to hear that. And, you know, interestingly enough, Mark, uh, much like you've said about fan, they're also trying to tie zinc back to uh, how many yeast cells are we trying to grow number rather than a standard PPM spec. Right. It was, it was a really great presentation. They talked a lot about how zinc content changes, you know, as the yeast multiply. Uh, so it was, it was a great presentation. I encourage listeners to, to look for that one in the district presentation archives over at mbaa.com. Coming up. If we could analytically see a difference at 72 hours, and we actually start to taste a difference at five days, then you got to recognize that anything that you do that's outside the realm of cautious care with your yeast is going to have an impact. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. (laughs) 
This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Barna Mechanical, a full-service design-build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. We partner with some of the best craft brewers in the U.S. to ensure the great beer they brew is what their customers get in every glass, bottle, can, or keg. You know beer. We know breweries. Additional support provided by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. A lot of districts just wrapped up their fall meetings. Here's what's on the Master Brewers calendar for the rest of the year. There's a HACCP course and a district meeting in Ontario, November 13th and 14th. Districts Milwaukee and St. Louis both meet November 15th. November wraps up with a webinar on strategies and tactics for being inclusive and building diversity in craft beer. The annual District St. Louis holiday party is December 7th. And it's not too early to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. I can't wait to see what decorations Tressa comes up with. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. In my past life too, we never looked at uh, yeast cell, peak yeast cell, um, because of the dynamic differences between the fermenters from brewery to brewery. We always looked at fan uptake and controlled our yeast cell growth based upon the amount of fan that was actually taken up by the yeast cells, which correlated directly to a peak yeast cell count that you could actually tag to a specific brewery. But you actually had to have um, the swiggles in the right locations, your sampling points at the right locations, because you get false readings in some respects. So it's when you compare a brewery of, of you know, with 4,000 barrel fermenters, with uh, 2,000 barrel or 1,000 barrel fermenter, the actual um, peak yeast cell counts don't necessarily correlate based upon where the swiggle is located. So you, you needed to find a more dynamic number, which was actual uptake of the protein, and that correlates directly to uh, yeast cell growth. That makes sense. Um, Mark, you, you mentioned word aeration. I think most craft brewers are, are using flow meters to standardize their oxygen input into their process, but I'm sure many of them aren't considering some of the other variables you wrote about, such as liquid fill height on fermenters, transfer delays, things of that nature. What advice do you have on this topic for the craft brewer who's in search of more consistency in their fermentations? Wow. Um, if it's a single fill process, so you got one brew, one transfer, to one tank, it, it's fairly simple, except when you may be transferring across a cellar or in some case, a, a, a warehouse that has a string of fermenters where you have the air injection on one end and maybe the last tank at the far end of the, of the warehouse uh, is, is gonna have a little different um, amount of oxygen going or air going into it, even though your flow, even though your, your um, 
um, your your rotameter or your metering process as you're getting the same amount in, you're actually going to get more absorbed with the greater amount of line pressure, et cetera. The reason why we I talked about um, transfer delays and, and fill heights, et cetera, is, is on multi-fermenter um, brews or multi-brew fermenters, I'm sorry. Multi-brew fermenters, it gets a little more complex. In, in the brewery that I was working in where we started looking at back pressure specifically, uh, we actually had four header systems. The air injection was um, by header number one, and and, and, it, and we had, um, I think it was eight fermenters, eight 4,000-barrel fermenters on each header. So you can consider the distance was significant. But what we saw, which is even more significant than the distance in from header one to header four, was actually from tank one to tank four in that in that line where where when you were filling on tank four you ended up with um much higher yeast growth because you apparently were getting more air into it etc so we ended up putting back pressure valves on the lines to actually hold a constant back pressure to the liquid height and the and the um, back pressure that would be seen at the farthest tank in the system so that any tank receiving the beer or the wort flow uh, and the oxygen level or oxygen injection was getting exactly the same amount of absorption based upon that back pressure. So it's, it's it was very dynamic in 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 trying to work out that particular process. But when you look at the consistency levels, you're going to find that there are two schools of thought around multi multi uh, fill fermenters, multi brew fermenters, and some. Folks will tell you that you actually have to have a consistent flow of oxygen going into the wart along with the wart being consistently flowing all the way through to the fill. Some authors will also tell you, no, you don't have to worry about that. You can fill and then stop and fill and then stop and then fill and then stop. I always look at these things as if I'm the yeast cell and I've got my little backpack of oxygen and I'm trying to to get myself into a fermentation mode and and along comes a brew and and I, I get all this nutrients and I feel really well and I get my oxygen supply and I, I'm doing wonderful and then I start my fermentation, I start moving into my lag phase, et cetera, and, and start to change my biological um, processes, et cetera, in order to fit an anaerobic process. Now, technically, I never really entered an, an aerobic process, but that gets pretty deep. So we'll just leave that alone, other than the fact that my processes are now swinging more towards an, an, a strictly anaerobic process. And then all of a sudden, here comes another brew and more oxygen and another rousing process, et cetera. And if you can, if you can think about that from one or two brews, probably not a big deal. But when you're looking at six or seven or eight brews, and this gets into the into the concerns, and one of the reasons why I wrote this paper was primarily around thinking about breweries that are growing, the ones that have gone from the small single brew fermenters to the multi-brew fermenters, et cetera, gone from one side of the country to the other side of the country, trying to make their beer consistent, et cetera. The, the, the processes have to be lined out in such a manner that you're almost anal about being consistent in the processes in order to make sure that your yeast performs exactly the same if you're trying to make the same beer in each location. Sometimes you, you end up with, with breakages or something goes wrong in the brew house or something you know happens where you don't have a process ready and, and you find yourself in a situation where um, you're 
you've got a delay. So it magnifies that that concern even farther from from the standpoint of of uh, I've got myself in my fermentation and I'm, and I'm making myself go into this anaerobic process and along comes another brew with more air, et cetera. Think about that now that you you've delayed that an additional two hours or additional four hours or half a day. What are you actually doing to that yeast cell as far as taking it in and out of a process? And today you do it one way and tomorrow you do it another way. Sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes it's not. But I'll tell you, in each and every case that you vary it, you have a variable as far as the flavor uh, that you're creating in those in those processes. So I started my career with a large brewer, and I did hundreds, literally hundreds of specials on these processes. Adjustments for free man nitrogen, adjustments for zinc, adjustments for temperature, pitching rates, oxygen, delays, three three day holds in a, in, of yeast in, in a yeast spring, five day holds, seven day holds, 10 day holds, uh, high temperature, low temperatures, etc. And all of these things were all put together and mapped through the processes. And it goes back to the authors, the, the, the Graham Stewart's of the world, the, the, uh, Bob, um, the uh, McCaig's of the world. Um, um, Etc. Those guys were the basis of much of the, the 1960s through 1990s research on yeast. And what we did was we mimicked a lot of what was actually uh, taking place in these in these research articles and trying to prove it to ourselves what made the best sense, etc. So uh, when you when you get into an anal process of trying to make sure that brewery A and brewery X are are the same process. Um, from a flavor standpoint, uh, you have to have a very high level of exacting control. Oxygen is just one of those one of those points. And I'll take that what, I'll take that one step further. And I didn't talk about this in this article, and that's the type of micro micronization of the bubbles. Um, the brewery I work for made a huge leap in its process control by changing from a single stone in line to an e-cell Huber process for, for air injection. I don't need to sell an e-cell Hubers to you, but the technology of exploding the, the air under uh, the pressure transition across the e-cell Huber unit and micronizing the bubbles gave us such a significant level of control and the amount of air that we're actually adding to the to the beer at the, or the ward at that time to give us a level of control to plus or minus two to three million cells in, in, in our peak or within a couple parts per million of free nitrogen uptake. So just to, just to give you an idea that if you use the wrong stone, you use the wrong process or delay in the process or have inconsistent pressures in those lines, you're not going to get the same amount of air. You're not going to get the same amount of fermentations. That's great. Yeah. Or if your stone clogs up over time because it's not being cleaned properly, things like that. And, you know, I think this stuff is totally relevant to today's craft brewer because even even if they're not trying to flavor match across multiple breweries, um, pretty much everybody is is working with multi-fill fermenters, even if they're very small. So it's it's something that I think affects almost everybody. Um, Very cool. Well, early in the article, you wrote about something that is unfortunately still far too common in some of the younger small breweries. Uh, You wrote, today we find that brewers will hold yeast often for days in the cones of fermenters and then question the degraded performance of the yeast. Later on, referring to flocculation, you write, once this separation process begins, so should the timer. 
Your objective should be to get yeast cooled as quickly as possible to a temperature that approaches 34 Fahrenheit with minimal agitation and exposure to oxygen. This is fundamental stuff here, Mark, but how about explaining what is likely to go wrong if folks dilly-dally with yeast cooling and and harvest? Well, it it becomes a self-digestion process. Yeast doesn't like to be exposed to warm temperatures. Um, it's, It's like you dropping into a pool and holding your breath. I mean, seriously. Um, if the yeast is not getting nutrients, uh, or it's not getting oxygen, et cetera, uh, and, and not carrying on a normal life cycle, it's going to shut down and it may shut down partially, or it may shut down all the way. And, and as it shuts down, it releases its enzymes and, and it becomes a self-autolysis process where the, where the yeast become digesting the yeast cells next door to it. So, so you only kill 10 million. Uh, well, you've damaged probably 50% of the crop that's there, uh, and it's not going to perform exactly the same way. Um, it may delay in its process uh, for growth. Um, you you may pitch the same amount and, and then actually not get the same amount of growth. So your ester profiles are all screwed up. Your 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 flavor profiles are all screwed up. Your alcohol levels and, and the amount of, of um, fermentability that you're getting out of that yeast may not reach the attenuation levels that you need, etc. So it, it's um, your, your yeast is a living organism. And I think people forget that fact that it's sensitive. It, it's not something that you can forget about. It, it, it's extremely sensitive to the environment you place it in. You know, I, I read about people saying, well, why don't I just add some more wort and, and oxygenate it and stuff like that? Well, yeah, okay, but it's not a consistent process. Um, what are you trying to get out of your process? If you're just trying to make a healthy yeast or trying to get to a one one-shot deal with a particular type of yeast and, you know, have at it. Um, do what, do whatever works for you in some respect. But if you're reclaiming that yeast or you want your profile to be the same this week as it is next week, you have to be very sensitive to the fact that you're dealing with something that's alive. And if you don't treat it right, it's not going to behave correctly. I tell you that, the, again, the brewery I work for, 72 hours. 72 hours from the time the cooling was turned on in that fermenter that yeast had to be back in a fermenter. If it was not in the fermenter, in 72 hours, we threw it away. Uh, And we proved to ourselves that even at 72 hours, you were starting to stretch the envelope of minor flavor changes. Five days, it it was obvious to taste panel members with their, nearly every taste panel member. Seven days, forget it. It started to be evident to consumers, et cetera. So, uh, if 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 we could analytically see a difference at 72 hours, you know, actually start to taste a difference at five days, um, I mean, significant taste differences at five days, then you, you got to recognize that anything that you do that's outside the realm of cautious care with your yeast is going to have an impact. Yeah, and you're talking 72 hours in the optimal in an optimal storage condition too, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So think about you know how many folks are kind of working with suboptimal storage conditions and, you know, pushing it weeks or, you know, days, weeks, whatever. Yeah, you're talking about cooling on, cone cooling, 
pulling directly out as soon as you get to a point where you have the right amount of yeast in suspension, um, pulling it right into a, a brinks that are, have uh, the proper agitation and um, cooling um, all automated temperature drops uh, within hours, you're down to 34 degrees and you're under control. Agitator goes off automatically the whole nine yards. You know, so you're absolutely correct. I worked in a brewery at one time where we did a, a, a Christmas shutdown and we actually would hold fermenters yeast on them with a little beer on them and, and, and wait about a week to 10 days and then we'd start harvesting this beer and, and start the process back up. And we fought those fermenters for, for, for weeks until we got to a point where they were back in line. So you end up with this, with this period of time, a month's worth of releases that tastes differently than the other 11 months out of the year. At one time, the brewery I used to work with, we used to have a holiday schedule. We put the, the same process together, but um, we actually remapped that whole process to to a maximum of a 72-hour shutdown. And that, that was the holiday window. And and, and you would actually, it, once that once that beer dropped off uh, and moved to the moved to the next stage of fermentation, we were back into the pitching process. Now, so we actually had to grow the yeast up. So our 72-hour window was our holiday window. There was no week or 10-day type process simply because we could never make it work from a flavor standpoint. Yeast does not take vacations. No, it doesn't. That's <laughs> <laughs> interview with Mark was recorded in the spring of 2017. If you want to read Mark's TQ article, you can find a link in the show notes or by typing yeast health into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. And if you want to dive deeper into zinc, check out episode 41 with Joe Kenny. Hey, remember the Belgian beer book that Sten Mertens and Jan Stencils talked about on episode 101, The Yeasts of Tomorrow? Well, great news. It's now available in the Master Brewers bookstore. Just go to mbaa.com store and type Belgian beer into the search bar to get your copy today. Countdown, I'm moving too fast.